From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is writer and interior designer David Netto. As a child, David became immersed in the world of design through his father, who owned the storied fabric house Captain and Tout. After dropping out of Harvard's Graduate School of Design, he found his true calling, building a brilliant career as a decorator and writer for Town & Country, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. As part of the Dialogues on Design series hosted by the New York School of Interior Design, I spoke with David in front of a live audience. We discussed the troubled magazine publishing industry, why times of crisis are opportunities to be bold, and why great decorators tend to be great storytellers, too. This week's podcast is sponsored by Cherish, interior designer's beloved source for chic, one-of-a-kind furniture, art, and decor. If you're a design pro and not in their trade program, you should be. Starting now, designers earn $75 cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish, plus access to net pricing and specialized live customer service. Sign up at Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com backslash trade. So before we get started, I just wanted to see a quick show of hands if there are any students in the audience. Show of hands. Okay, okay, so several, all right. So, because we want to gear some of our talk tonight to the, to the it future. It's like a very young student crowd to me. Yeah. So I think they're just shy. I think they're all students. Is it, is it a funny thing about putting people's hands up? I don't know, I, I, yeah. When you're young, you, 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 know, you don't have necessarily the confidence yet yeah. to do that. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna come to that though later. <laughs> They'll later, get there. Later in life. It's always confusing to me these days when David gets introduced as an LA-based designer, okay? So David is, a, is an Upper East Side boy, if ever there, if ever there were, and, and David and I share some of those fun memories and happy times. Tell us a little bit about the, the early years for, for David Netto. Well, um, to explain what Dennis is getting at, we both went to Buckley as children in the 70s, which is an all-boys school a few blocks from here, with mixed results. Um, <laughs> you know. Buckley wasn't looking to make designers. They were looking to make... So true. You know, a guy with a lack stick in the ground next to him, you know, yes. on his way to Deerfield. But they, they didn't do me too wrong. I, it wasn't, okay. it okay. wasn't the place for me to be me yet. Right. But they did. But I met, you know, I got a great education. Let's just put it that way. It, it, it prepared and, us for what came, came next in many ways. And um, what you asked me, which is different than the school, is what New York was I in as a child? Yeah. And I actually really value that more and more um, when I now live in Los Angeles and when I come to New York and see what it's become versus what we knew it to be growing up in the 70s. I keep saying 70s, 80s, you know, I'm not that old. I mean, um, it, was a very, it was a very different place on the Upper East Side when we were kids. Yes. There was much more contrast and high-low. If you watch the dolly shots on Madison Avenue in the French Connection in front of the, the Westbury Hotel, when Gene Hackman is staking out the, the French guy staying there. Yeah. You know, the, the storefronts are not Prada and Michael Kors, no. to say the least. You know, there was this incredible 
aspect of local sort of shoemaking and key locksmiths and stuff, things you can still sort of see around Lexington Avenue in the, in the high 70s, was very much front and center on Madison Avenue. You know, there was, there was lots of style. Definitely. And that was, the, the Carlisle was what it is. But, you know, it was very interspersed with humble atmosphere. So we didn't have any heirs growing up on the Upper East Side. We didn't think we were necessarily elegant people. I certainly thought everything my parents did was gross and wrong. And and (laughs) when I looked out the window at the apartment building across the street, you know, that was where we should have been. And that was how we should have been making curtains and, and installing recessed lighting that we didn't have and air conditioning that was in the window instead of the way. So it was the making of me as a decorator in many yes. ways, that, that, that sort of scuzzy Upper East Side. Well, so, so tell me a little bit of that journey. So, you, so after, after Buckley, after the, the trauma of, of Buckley, uh, which, which, right, which we're both you know, forever scarred from, but you know, that aside, a- after well, that. Being, being angry as a child doesn't necessarily mean that you're beaten. You know, I was angry at my treatment in a culture that wanted me to be sporty and didn't value that I was some kind of Tim Burton artistic, you know, kid interested in history. I was equally interested in history to designing anything. I mean, I didn't know I was going to be an interior designer. I thought I was going to be an architect at the age of eight or or 10, which Buckley had as little interest in as if I was going to be, you know, an acrobat. I mean, that was a preppy, blinkered, limited environment and outlook on what your options were. There was in my own life and my, because of my father's business, an exposure to that design world, which was very big time and, and sort of culturally rich right. it, involving Albert Hadley. Yes. And I never met Billy Baldwin, but my godfather was a textile designer called Alan Campbell, my father's business partner. Exactly. And we was, should explain for those in the audience that might know who David might not know who David's father was, Eldo Neto, who my dad bought Cowton and Tout. And it was a trunk of documents in a you know, dormant business in 1977 and built it back into the fabric house that we know it to be today. Eldon and before that, a legendary figure. He kind of is, industry. actually, yeah, and he deserves to be. But before that, he was Alan's business partner. Right. Alan had great taste, and sister and Albert loved his batiks and would use them for projects where they, they wanted to make things look sort of exotic and handmade amidst all of the Parrish Hadley correctness. And um, they saw those fabrics first when Halston made caftans out of them and Babe Paley wore the caftans and Albert saw this fabric and said, who made that? You know, so this was what I grew up hearing about. And I remember my father painting at the kitchen table some of the Alan Campbell designs that are now produced by Quadrille. And it was that there was that, it was totally gay, not family life. Mm. Those people very often were deeply alcoholic and conspicuously not happy. You know, I can remember I don't need to name anybody, but a lot of those big time decorators were very lonely and they had to consort with sort of society, people that were not necessarily nice to them. And they would, you know, people you might cross the street to avoid having to talk to, but you were tethered to for years. And that part of the business actually hasn't changed. I'm not saying that was the 70s. And it's not. <laughs> so it hasn't evolved yeah. very much in that way. Yeah, I got the drinking sort of under control. Okay, excellent. Glad but, to hear um, that. There was, you know, there was the awareness that there was taste and what that meant, but it was just a nut, you might as well have thought about studying to be a rabbi or something. It was just a totally different thing from who we were, who a kid going to Buckley was going to be, and how, right. you know, I came at that, at my interest in design and environments was 
that my father was a collector. He was a collector of old master drawings and furniture. And my parents were older, and I was born when my dad was 42. So by the time I was 10, I was talking to people in their 50s. Yeah. And in order to get my father to talk to me, I had to learn about the things that he was interested in. And I remember him taking me to Sotheby's. It was then called Park Burnett on Madison Avenue when I was four, six years old, and watching him talk about furniture and asking questions to get, not because I knew I loved French furniture, but because that was the only thing that he was going to talk to me about. That was your way in to, to communicate yeah. with him. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not, that sounds kind of grim or something. It wasn't no, painful. No. I, it was, I think that's a very natural process. To talk about that yeah. on a Saturday as, as cars. You know, he was also interested in beautiful cars mm-hmm. and cars have a lot to teach one about design. But the one image of, of my childhood that I remember sort of a light bulb moment that something special was going on here because of those interests, which my mother did not share, by the way, with him. She was sporty and she just didn't care about any of that. Right. Was when my parents had a party and we lived on um, Fifth Avenue and 83rd Street and they hired waiters to come over and serve the party. And all of the waiters gathered in the living room in their white jackets to look at the old master drawings. You know, these were like young guys Maybe some were decorators, maybe they, you know, and they, they were opera fans and they knew what they were seeing. So when these sleeves came off for the party, because during the day they were covered to protect them from light, all of these, you know, very erudite, maybe design students here were looking at what we had at home that I never understood until that moment was really anything special. I just thought it was what my father was sort of consumed with. Yeah. We're taking a quick break to give you the insider scoop on the Cherished Trade Program. Join the Cherish Trade Program today and you'll receive new hotshot perks. Earn $75 cash for every $5,000 you spend on the site and access to a trade-only customer service hotline and snappy new project management tools to make your life even easier. And let's not forget the trade program's ongoing key benefits, including net pricing up to 30% off and 48-hour hold capabilities. To get in on the fun today, visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show. So we were talking earlier about Sarah Lawrence, which which you would come to years later and how- Sarah Lawrence was great. Sarah Lawrence was a great experience for me because, not because that it was like design school or something, but it was a great place to learn to be a writer, even if you didn't use it then. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking a lot about decorating, but I am half my career is being a writer. And I, and I value that very much, even though it's the worst way to make money in the world. <laughs> um, and, and so what's the foundation that that gave you? Because while, you're, while David is taking a sip of water, he is a writer, uh, but he is also a, a tremendous historian of design, an aficionado of this industry and a man of great depth on this, on this, on this industry. He'll, he'll well, laugh it nobody off. Nobody even knows that but... I wrote anything. I mean, now, like, I have to live up to that. Well, but... Um, like, the prototype for architect writer is Philip Johnson, okay? I didn't necessarily know that at the time, but he used both channels of self-expression. Is that you putting that pressure on yourself or are you just saying this was a, this is a good model? Well, no, I'm, I'm sort of backing into explaining, okay. you know, why, where that idea comes from. Okay. 
and who showed me, you know, mentorship, we're in a school, it's very, it's a privilege to get to go to school. And I think, I wish I, I rather wish I had gone to design school in some structured way. I went to architecture school, but did not complete it. But what really matters, I think, in a design education is mentorship. You have to go to work for somebody whose tastes you admire. You learn to walk by walking. You know, you learn to be a designer by being in an office environment or a studio. You know, it, would, it wouldn't hurt to go to school, but I, I did okay because I did that, you know, instead of school. Anyway, Philip Johnson is the first writer-architect uh, of our sort of generation. Yeah. He used that scholarship to enhance his cultural stature, writing about people like Frank Lloyd Wright, and it drove Frank Lloyd Wright crazy that Philip Johnson would get to hold in judgment, you know, his, his <laughs> Who work he? when he was organizing and curating exhibitions at MoMA and so, so forth. The second guy who used that to great effect is Robert A.M. Stern, Bob Stern. And I remember being 13 years old and turning on the TV with my parents on Sunday night on PBS to a series called Bob Stern's um, architecture series oh, called yes. Pride of Place. Exactly, yeah. Pride of Place. Uh, building the American Dream. And that's still the only show that's ever been like that. You know, Bob understood the power of media-friendly discussions about architecture. So looking at, at those two careers, I thought, you know, I want to do something like that, not for architecture, but for, for design history, and to make it accessible in the way that when you read Simon Shama, write about art history in the FT, it's funny, it's associative, and you don't have to have gone to grad school to get into the subject. Well, and earlier you and I were talking about, at various times, you might have thought about teaching, but in a way, writing gives you that, that ability to, to sort of share and to, and to teach. Yeah, I would say teaching somewhere is still a fantasy of mine. That's a bucket list thing that if okay. anybody asks me, every time I'm in front of Deborah Burke, who's the dean of Yale Architecture School, I'm batting my eyes and hoping she'll invite me to come <laughs> pick, up. Pick me, pick and me. Do, um, a course on interior design and atmosphere, you know, at the Yale School of Architecture. It has not happened yet, but, you know, one of my prouder moments was going back to Harvard and giving a, a talk about yes. interior design in the architecture school where this is yeah. not really properly, they call that the GSD, Graduate School of Design, Landscape, Urbanism, and Architecture, but interior design is sort of the part they forgot to tell you about. And, well, um, and, and David, as he sort of alluded to, went there for a couple of years, yeah, and, and, right, yeah. and, and decided he didn't want to be an architect. Well, I really couldn't do the math to graduate. It was also so decided was for me. It was it was like a Buckley nightmare moment all over. <laughs> so the, the trauma of Buckley came I back once again. I had to put a, a good face on it, but yes. I really I couldn't pass structures. Kind of broke my heart actually at the time. Well, no, it it did. All joking aside, it, I mean, I know it was, was a, a grim. It was a big time in my life. Yes, you know, and, and the, no one could understand why I wouldn't complete that degree, and only I I really knew that I couldn't I couldn't do the math. So I left and I walked right into a moment in New York when a lot of people that I grew up with, some of whom you may know, on the Upper East Side, back to the Upper East Side, <laughs> can't get away. The Upper East Side, we love to come home. Were Don't worry, mother, I'm not coming back. Don't doing worry. Doing their first fancy apartments. You know, yeah. these were people who were 25, 27. They were having success as finance careers were getting going, and they wanted to work with a friend and they all knew that I knew how to give them what they wanted because they had been to my apartment. So I did right away have a chance to get over the architecture school debacle with, you know, do you want to do my apartment? Do you want to do this apartment? So and that's how you bounced back from that. 1990, 
97. 97. Okay. So you return to NYC, you start doing real... I had worked for a couple of firms. Ferguson, Shimam, Ferguson Murray and Shimamian was then known. At the time when they were Murray all together. Schaefer was an architect, who, and that's where we became friends. And then I came back from the Harvard experience and I, I went back to work for Bunny Williams and an architect called Nasser Nakib, Nasser Nakib who was very sure. much a mentor to me then yeah. and worked for them for a year. You know, all together between the two of them, two years. And I went independent in 2000. Right. I had a big job. I didn't want to run a business, but I was sort of pushed. Nasser felt like it was time. For, for you to sort of go out on your yeah, own and, and, push. and do it. And you had a project. and I was very angry at him. He insisted he was doing me a favor. You were angry at him for pushing you out of the nest? I wanted to sit there with my headphones on and not have to be bothered with responsibility for the whole enterprise. You know, it's a different thing to be a, a designer and to love to draw than to want to run a business. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's a lot to talk about there because that, that is something that we spend a lot of time talking about. It, it is sort of this, and it's, this it's challenge. it's diabolical gets, because it's a yeah. totally different skill set from what got you in the business in the first place. You know, Mario Buada, who would be much better guest than me tonight if he was still here, cracking everybody up, used to say, <laughs> you have to be an art historian or a designer to get the design, you know, accepted. You have to be a lawyer to get paid. You have to be a psychiatrist to um, maintain the relationship with the client. And then you have to be, I mean, he just went on and on. There were many layers to this, but it wasn't a joke. That's absolutely true. You have to be all of those things to operate a design business. Exactly. And and that is part of the reality that we always want to deliver, which is sort of why I was asking who are the design students in the room, because that is an important message to deliver. And and it's it's an odd expectation in our industry that an interior designer should be tasked with all of those things that David just described. And as you hear, David wasn't too keen to take much of that on at the time, circa 2000. So h- how'd you do it? I wasn't it? in any rush to. Um, and I, try, I tried to escape. I made a break a couple of times to get out of there. One was to make furniture. I thought, this is exhausting. I don't want to be in a service business. And when I thought about the limits of what everyone's success could be in, in uh, decorating. If the name on the door goes home every day, then you really only have your time to sell. You know, and I, I had a child and that changed my priorities of mm-hmm. how I wanted to spend time. And so I tried to become a product manufacturer instead of be in the service business. Tell me how long that, that lasted for. How long was that ride? Well, I had taken it as far as I could. Yes. And what I learned was that it's much scarier to make things than to sell your time. As, as down as I was on the service part, it's an easier business to run mm. than manufacturing furniture in Europe and, fi- and sourcing stuff in Asia. When you find out three years into it, you really always should have been in Asia and not. And um, every time we got some some momentum, another thing would come up that's like, oh, wait, we have to do this too. You know, once we made this beautiful baby furniture and the idea was to make as if Hermes made baby furniture, which I didn't really know why they didn't. We made it and then all the the children's stores sucked. Yes. They just looked horrible. Horrible. And would ruin the effect that you were trying to deliver of this experience or, or tell people what it was about. This is furniture that, that is desirable, that doesn't have to end up in landfills. You know, there had already been strollers that were sort of hot, like mm. Bugaboo, mm-hmm. but no, you know, and they cost $1,000, but no, no uh, fancy baby furniture. So then we had to build boutiques for it. You know, it was like you build a train station, you think your work is done, and then you have to build a hotel across the street to hold, you know, Pennsylvania yeah. Station then gave way to the hotel across the street. The solution to that was to go to 
maternity stores, some of which actually were cool, and convinced them to do a store in store. And we were the only baby line that they sold and so forth. But, it, you know, it, it, on and on like that. And finally, I was like, well, we need to sell. We need to actually make an exit plan. Yes. Because we've done what we could and we didn't do badly. Right. But, you know, actually, I kind of miss, <laughs> miss decorating. It wasn't such a bad business. Well, and so, so you. After all. Yeah. So you. you less complicated. Less complicated. complicated. Right. So 2009 was sort of a. a Not less schlepping, but less, well. less, uh, <laughs> less variables that could come out and bite you in the ass. Yes. You know? Yes. 2009 was a great time to try to sell somebody something. <laughs> remember that? I do. I yeah, remember First well. I started trying to sell my Damien Hursts, and then yeah. I, I ended up trying to sell my uh, business. Yeah. But I did. I had a great business partner. You were very fortunate. Claude Arpels, who uh, went to in, Buckley. Indeed. A former classmate of mine, yet again. Um, it's and, all about going to Buckley. And kids. we did survive that. And I went to, to work for the next company for three years as their design director. Right. McLaren kind of kept you on for a while. They, yeah. They loved yeah. hearing from you. Yeah. And then you yeah. exited and out and of there. That, that went away. I was sitting in LA with uh, not very much to do, both relieved and about to be very bored. Everyone in this room is so successful, they probably don't know that feeling at all. But there's, a, there's about a three-month window, look on their faces. which when you enter it, you're like, oh my God, I've always wanted this time. Thank God I have nothing to do. I'm going to go to dinner and you know, watch movies with my wife and enjoy life. And you get about a month to two months of that really being enjoyable. And then this creepy feeling comes over you that you, something, what's, what, wait, is it always going to be this way? Like I have to do something. And at that moment that I really needed the next thing, I got a call from Deborah Needleman, who used to be the editor of, she was the inventor of Domino magazine. And she had been sort of in the woods since Domino was shut down by Condé Nast. She remembered that I'd written a couple of essays that she liked mm. for, for Domino and she emailed me. And I remember the email perfectly. I remember the feeling I had when I read it. And Deborah emailed me and said, I want to turn you into a writer. And that was the, the email, call me. And she had just accepted the editor-in-chief job for WSJ. This is in 2010. Mm-hmm. I remember. Like, 08, 09, everything burns down to the ground. Magazines got a business. People are fired. The most talented people in the world have no work. So Deborah was recruited by WSJ to make a design and fashion book for them. And when I called people that I had known all my life, that knew me well, that respected me as a colleague, if not, you know, a, I didn't have too much of a track record as a writer, and asked to write about their work, many of them laughed and wouldn't do it. Because, because, because they said, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal, why would I want to be in the Wall Street Journal? You know, I published in AD and El Decor. That was all they thought right. was the place to be. Yeah. And within less than two years, with Deborah's excellent leadership. To, to Deborah's enormous credit. The yes. two years. Yes. I wrote about what I knew. I wrote about Madeline Castang. I wrote about books that were coming out. And I was warming up for what is a, a career that I must really value because even though I keep saying how little money it pays, I don't abandon it. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear from one of our sponsors. When it comes to home technology, black plastic gadgets are out and friendly human design is in. With Google Nest, you can get a little extra help at home without sacrificing design. Nest Hub and Nest Mini are designed with soft color sand fabrics that fit right in on the side table or kitchen counter. And they're powered by the Google Assistant, so you can control your home with your voice. Just say, hey Google, good morning. And the Google Assistant can turn up the heat, turn on the lights, and tell you the latest forecast, traffic on the way to work, and even the headlines. It's a personalized briefing from an assistant that knows you best. It's a little help at home, like only Google can. And now, 
back to the show. I have a column for Town & Country called Case Studies, which is sometimes about a car, and it's sometimes about a photograph, and it's sometimes about, uh, it can be about a building, but it's, it's always about the way I felt sitting in Barry Bergdahl's class, being told about social history and intimate facts at the same time as this is how to read the facade of a building. And, and it's interesting that you say that because when you went back to Harvard and, and gave that talk, you actually opened the talk with an image of a car. And you often will use sort of unexpected imagery to talk about design in, in a larger sense. Well, what Dennis is referring to is there's a Bugatti uh, from 1936 owned by Ralph Lauren, the Atalanta Coupe, Atlantic Coupe. And the spine of the car, if you look at it from the back, is rivets and, and two you know, pieces of metal joined like a toy almost, you know, down the middle, put together, and the rivets are very visible. When they made the prototype of the car, they were using some kind of lightweight aluminum-based metal that couldn't be welded. And so it would either melt too easily or was, something was wrong. So they riveted the, the prototype together into pieces. And then when they built the actual car, they used a different kind of metal, probably steel. Mm. And they didn't need to use the riveted spine. They could have had the whole thing be smooth. But by then, everybody realized that this kind of muscle and steampunk con constructivist industrial detail actually was, was the whole soul of the car. And I told that to the design students as a way of saying, you know, always keep your eyes open. And if something looks like a mistake or you think it's going to go away and become something more perfect, that might not necessarily be the best solution. When you're running a business, it's really hard to keep your eyes open. The hardest thing to do is design the way you want to design when you're also having to be social with people and meet, travel a lot. Greatest untold story in American design history, architecture design history, is Horace Trumbauer and Julian Abel. Horace Trumbauer was the architect of many, many great Beaux-Arts buildings, houses and industrial institutional buildings, like um, Widener Library at Harvard. He was sort of the personal family architect to the Wideners. And when Trumbauer opened his office, he never did another drawing again. He was constantly in meetings and he you know, was, was traveling, and this is the turn of the century. He had a key employee and head of his uh, office called Julian Abel, A-B-E-L-E. Julian Abel was the first black graduate of the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, and Trumbauer had mentored him with no prejudice, in part because Trumbauer came from very humble economic beginnings in the South, and, and I have read, although it's not confirmed, that he actually couldn't read. Mm. But the relationship between Abel and Trumbauer is extremely moving. They were together their whole life, and the greatest body of French classical revival architecture in the world, I mean, not just New York, but London, no one ever conjured the refinement of the French 18th century as well as Julian Abel, which was drawn by a black man with no formal education in the teens and the 20s, you know, who was believed in by his boss. Mm -hmm. And that was the story of the success of Horace Trumbauer. This is a long way of saying you have to find a way to still be the designer you want to be when you have a lot of other vectors tugging at you. It is such a challenging industry. It's less of a monolithic industry than I ever thought I would see it be. You know, I don't know what's happening with magazines. I do know that Instagram is all anybody cares about, really. Yeah. And in a funny way, it makes books more important. You know, if the magazines are less 
and I don't know about in free fall or whatever they are. They're in disarray, some more than others, you know. And every and I don't think anybody can say they know what's good, what magazines are going to be there and what and which aren't in two or three years. But sadly, you're right. Instagram is filling a hole. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's not like there's nothing. It's just not edited. Um, it's a vomit draft, you know. And um, books have a new important stature in that people want them and they're. They have long lives. They have unpredictable long lives. It's like that beautiful moment in, in the movie Basquiat when Julian Schnabel says, your audience hasn't even been born yet. What are you so depressed about? You know. <laughs> and um, when you think about the books that meant a lot to me that were published in the 30s or the, the 60s, there was this funny book my father had around called The Finest Rooms from 1964. <laughs> in, you know, it was about American decorating. It was a snapshot of that. And it had Sister Parrish. It had like eight or 10 decorators that were big at that time. And one of them is Michael Taylor, mm-hmm. you know, and, but the Michael Taylor that you look at in that book in 1964 is extremely classical, no ball pillows, no big sir, you know, random stone sort of caveman, anything, you know, was not what he became. But the, the power of a book is more than ever relevant because I think without anything in between, people need to be able to classify intelligently what they're seeing on Instagram, and books still can do that. Like that interiors book that I was proud to be part of, the Fiden interiors book I contributed an essay to. is like an encyclopedia that we have lost from the, the leadership that is not the same way from magazines. Well, exactly. And that, and that Except is- Except for town and country. Well, and, and, and interestingly, Stéline, in, in a recent talk, talked about how magazines have the authority and the authoritative voice that well, her they can editorship. have. Yeah. I'm not sure they all still have it. Well, I you want to talk about that. Well, let's <laughs> let's talk about that, David. Let's get into that. I don't know that I could do any better than anybody if I was presiding over an imploding uh-huh. business model. Yeah. So I want to be very generous and careful about criticizing something that As I, he always I couldn't do better. Yeah. You know, but. I don't know what it's like to meet with advertisers and, and, and have to quantify what clicks actually add up to economically. Yeah. That's a whole other heavy executive experience that I'm totally unqualified to have. Sure. But I do think the time when you're on your ass and there's no end in sight, no backstop to the adversity, that is not the time to try to be a people pleaser. I think that's the time to lead because you actually have nothing to lose. And I think that terrible mistakes are being made as, a, as a, I can only comment as a consumer of okay. certain magazines that I loved because the, the leadership is not really invested in anything but trying to keep it alive. You know, it's the time for, sure. for bold new points of view. Maybe none of it'll work, but if you don't stand for quality, I really don't see that you're doing anything but looking at your watch and trying to pay your kids' college tuition before it all goes away in a couple of years. So what know? should they be doing instead? How, are they, how can they lead? Challenging how- us. Okay. You know, I mean, the great memorable magazines that now Pinterest is sort of making people aware of mm-hmm. are Holiday. Uh, I mean, I, I can't, I sh- I've trapped myself now having to be no, sp- specific no. and name things. But there was a golden age of magazine publications and Flair and Holiday and the sort of Maison et Jardin you know, radical stuff from the early 70s, very bold. And who knows if any of that made any money or not? I don't know. Sure. It didn't lose money, maybe. Yeah. I think it should be less 
timid because there's nothing, there's nowhere to go but up、mm. or sideways. Yeah. The challenge with with we have a very narrow stable of people that are celebrated in in architecture and design magazines. Exactly. If you aren't aware, like you know, in a, in an aggressively self educating way, taking the initiative to find out what's out there, yes, you're not going to learn it from magazines the way you would have 30 years ago. Right. There's there's a very limited. You're going to see Scott Disick's house, or you're going to see、mm-hmm. some some sort of weird stuff that's symptomatic of a lack of faith that quality will that showing people quality will will cut it. Yes, and be enough. Well, and sadly, the magazine industry was both the educational tool for the interior design industry. It it held up the people and celebrated the designers that you should hear about and should know about and should learn from. And it also supported the industry and it exposed that industry to to a broader array of consumers than it is today. Yeah, it did. Right, it did. It certainly did. It reaped the benefit of being much more culturally significant. And then, then any magazines maybe that I can appear you know, to be compare、sure. to those, the effect those had then with now. Yes.、Um, another thing that you and I have talked about, which I also、uh, wrote about in the Fiden Interiors book, was AIDS. You know, I, I actually we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, and no, I kind no, of but... lifted this observation from Tina Brown. I really loved her book,、uh, The Vanity Fair Diaries, and and there's a very moving component of it where she describes. The、uh, impact of the the losses, you know, in in talent in the magazine、mm-hmm. and writing world, because of AIDS in the eighties, design was probably worse hit than you know. I mean, the fact that we should still have Angelo Dangia, and there should have been this huge deep bench of monumental talent that we were deprived of, and plus, not just them, right? That they'd mostly still be alive and practicing,、mm-hmm. but the people they would have mentored, the mentorship that I described,、exactly. you know,、um, as being so essential, there would be exponential, you know, sort of multiples of graduates of those offices out there saving the design world from going down the tubes now that、It's, we don't have, right? I don't no, know no. where to go with this thought, but I'm saying if you're ever looking at design history in the last thirty, forty years, that belongs in any analysis of what's good and what's bad and how it got there. Well, and as you say, we don't have the the deep bench that we would have had, and there aren't all of those great teachers and and educators of design that we that we would have had. And and you look back at firms, and and we were talking about this recently here at the school. You look back at a Parrish Hadley that had this incredible group that went on the the David Kleinbergs, the Brian McCarthys,、yeah. the, the incredible talent pool、yeah. that that came、and、out、buddy. of there. And、exactly. one person and, who and, deserves and, to be named, who's not often spoken of, unfortunately, is Kevin McNamara. Kevin McNamara was a great American designer, as great as many people are. Always calling Billy Baldwin. You know he was less prolific. He didn't do books. There is no book, which is why he's not as well remembered as he should be. But the,、yeah. but the incredible voice of Kevin McNamara is a Parrish Hadley gift. Yeah. Should we be talking about questions or? Well, you or, know, interestingly, you should say that. Or AIDS. I, I was. I, I think AIDS is. We're going to wrap up on that because yeah, that's 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 just you know bringing the room right down. I sense a restlessness. But I. Have a a nifty little handheld microphone that I have just switched on, and I'm actually going to come out into our audience,、oh, and、uh, because I know that David has a great many fans here tonight, and I want to see if someone has a question or two for David. That they yes, let me come running over to you. Hi, you know Dorothy Draper had this great quote, which was,、um, "I'm classic with a dash of daring." A lot of the、um, he also divided. <laughs> The society into the divorced, 
There are women who are happily married and there are decorators. Yes. Women are divided into two groups. Well, you want to know what? To her credit, she, you know, anytime you argue with reality, you lose. So she nonetheless created an identity and, you know, an incredible aesthetic that we're talking about today. Very cool and very important. Um, But anyway, what she did say is that um, the one thing that will endure is color. And for so long, we saw the gray and the muted colors. And suddenly, um, and I'm wondering if that also impacted the diminishing of, you know, more people being interested in design because you don't see that much color. And now you're seeing, do you feel that you're seeing more of it or more floral prints? Because I care about florals, but... You know, I'm curious. I don't do you think see magazines can tell us what to think anymore the way they well, once I'm did. Magazines, no, I'm I know, saying but I'm just backing design. into the answer by saying when we were told that beige was cool in the 90s or whatever that was, early 90s, and it really became a thing once you saw, you know, that a magazine said that. And it, these kinds of now is beige time and now we have more color time. I, that doesn't really exist anymore. I think now everything's possible. And I think that there is more color than there once was, but that's also because the the mechanism that used to tell us what to think in terms of trends, the way fashion is very dictative or dictatorial about, you know, telling you what you think, that's really no longer the case. Now everything's out there. If you if you've made it, you know, you can hire Studio Paragali and have a completely nostalgic house as good as Visconti or anything, you know, could have been in Bloomsbury or anything like that. And you could still hire John Pawson and have something like Calvin Klein has in Southampton, which is complete poetry. That I don't remember being that way before as much. Yes. One thing or another. Thank you. Um, David, I've had the good fortune to see some of your projects in person. And when I think about you as a designer... I, I think about you as a as a bit of a collector, like your where your roots come from. Talk to us a little bit about your process in terms of approaching. Does it always start with architecture? Does it sometimes start with furniture and collections? And what's the most recent sort of outstanding piece of of furniture art that's sort of driven design for you in a project? I do try to turn people in collect into collectors. That's something that I've often said is a is a goal of mine. And even if it just means buying a lot of books. And so thank you for thinking of me as a collector. And I, that's the hardest work is doing that for anybody else, getting them to try to, to, be, to accept that you will make them a collector. Otherwise, this won't be as successful as it should be. My process is to make a, a reference, an intelligent reference, to get into character referring to the architecture and to do a portrait of the client. I, I do think that it's a failure if all, the, if all the projects look like the decorator. For me, it would be a failure. Many people much more successful than I do just don't care about that. Their force of will and personality means that those projects are successful and people want that from them. But I always try to make a portrait and I try to make it to tell a story based on context, architectural context. And then the other thing that, funnily enough, every time I start, I forget I need to do this, is I draw the rooms and then I plug in the fabrics and the colors and, and what I want to put in them. And when I'm stumbling and I'm holding a carpet sample and I'm trying to get started, and the people I work with are helpful, but they can't do it for you, I remember, okay, Jesus, what am I doing? I have to draw the room. And I sit down and I draw. I love to draw. But that's my background in hardscape, in architecture. And when I draw it, then I can see what I want to put in it. 
Yes. And, and for all of David's self-criticism about his math skills, he's a, he's a brilliant artist and, 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 and art. Yes. Hi there. I was just curious about sort of the relationship between being a writer and I guess the design process and sort of the interplay, imagining clients as characters in the rooms, or is it, is it just sort of a useful device to sell them on a concept or just sort of the relationship between these two identities you have? Good question. That is a good question. I want to do a good job answering it. Tell me the very first sentence of the question again. It was... <laughs> I guess it was just sort of the interplay between being a writer and right. a decorator, well, if you're imagining... Well, a good decorator is a storyteller. So I don't know that that... I've met great decorators that couldn't write anything and couldn't draw anything, but they tell a story when they decorate. And so when I go into either job... That's the way I approach it, and it does feel familiar. The people that I work for, I very often have great sort of emotional connection to. And for instance, I did a house for somebody in East Hampton. When they wanted to come to East Hampton, I was excited that these people bought a house in East Hampton and the LA clients and wanted to be part of that life, you know. And I was going to be goddamned if I let them come to town and not look like they had, hadn't lived there for 70 years. So right there, I was thinking about the Whitney House in Saratoga that Sister Parrish put the American flag over the bench in the front hall. And it was sort of the beginning of American style in many ways for what I was going to continue to confer upon these people from California. They didn't know anything that was happening to them. They just thought, oh, great. But when people came over, it looked like they had always lived there. And that was the story I wanted to tell. You have to invent this stuff. Well, and, and part of what David is, is referring to is, as I sort of mentioned earlier, the, the, David's incredible knowledge of, of the history of, of design and what was there and what should be there today that would make it relevant to, to what, what was. That's, that's part of what David has, has immersed himself in over the years, and it's, it's part of the layering and the depth that David brings to, to the work, but also to the, the sharing about what is so significant about the work that you all do. Uh, another question? In the room? No, we're good? All right. Thank you, David. Okay. Thank well, you. thank you, David. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover our show. We love your feedback. Please send us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli and edited by Nina Pollock. I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.